Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before we dive into the episode today, I want to announce that the Spanish version of this podcast is now launched and available to all. One of the things that your support has allowed me to do is to be able to afford a software that translates every episode of Conversations with Coleman into Spanish. So if you have a Spanish-speaking friend that you think would enjoy the podcast, please send them the Spanish version, which you can find in the description below. Now on to the episode. My guest today is Claire Lehman. Claire's the founder of Quillette, the online magazine that I used to write for. Claire and I talk about why she founded Quillette, how she maintains its original purpose as a magazine. We discuss the so-called IDW, the intellectual dark web, and the perception that it fractured into two camps on COVID issues. We discuss the difference between Australian and American COVID policy. We discuss the phenomenon of audience capture and how to fight it. We talk about gun control in America and Australia, and much more. So without further ado, Claire Lehman. All right, so I'm here with Claire Lehman, my old boss. It's great to hey, talk Colin. to you again, Claire. Yeah, you too, Colin. I imagine my whole audience will be aware of you, not least because I got my start writing at least outside of my own personal rantings and ravings as a college student in my own Google Doc and outside of the rare occasion on which the Columbia Student Journal would publish me, I got my start writing on your online magazine, Quillette. And it was one of the few serious outlets that would actually read you know, submissions from nobodies and if they were good enough, would actually work with that nobody, namely me, to get the article up to snuff and then would release it. And and it was really, you can never run a career back twice or a life back twice to know what would have been different. But if there were any moments in my life that were those sort of butterfly effect moments, which is to say you change one thing and it, and it really alters the course of your life, Quillette accepting my uh, my work would plausibly be that moment, right? And so I've always felt very grateful and, and proud to be an alum of Quillette. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to start by saying that. Oh, that's that's wonderful feedback, Coleman. And I remember when Jamie first came to me, because Jamie was taking the cold call submissions that were coming in. And he said, I've got this amazing piece by a Columbia student, doesn't need any edit, like barely needs any editing at all. And it's, it's, you know, just masterful in its reasoning. And so, I mean, your work was of such a high quality just from the get-go that we were we were extraordinarily proud to publish you and then we, we, we're still proud to have you as an alumni. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the origins of Colette and mm. one thing in preparing for this conversation, one thing I thought about you as, as a founder of a major internet-era online magazine is that there are many reasons why you would be an unlikely person to found the next major online 
internet magazine, which is to say, if you rolled the clock back to, when was Quillette founded? Uh, around November 2015. 2015. October, November, yeah. If you rolled the clock back to that time and you asked people, you know, where is the next major online magazine going to come from and who is it going to come from? A smart gambler would bet that it would probably come from an American, that it would probably come from a man, that it would probably <laughs> come from someone who is a, you know, like a second or third generation elite. Yeah. And I think almost nobody would guess that that it would come from an Australian woman that is by no means a second or third generation elite like many people in the journalism world. Mm. And so much less, it would be a kind of science-driven, libertarian-leaning magazine. And so there are just a lot of reasons why Quillette would have, might have seemed unlikely on a superficial level and why you might have seemed unlikely as a founder on a superficial level. Mm. But what do you think was it about yourself at that time and about the environment that really allowed for Quillette's rapid rise? Well, that's a really interesting question and nobody's actually asked a question like that before. So I haven't really had to think about it. But I would just say that for all of the reasons you just listed, a person with a more shrewd or rational strategy probably wouldn't start a media company in the first place because the media industry is famously difficult to make money in. There are much easier ways to make money if you're a smart person in today's world. You can go into finance. You can go into consulting. There's lots of jobs. Like if you have a good education, there are a lot of jobs that you can pursue and a lot of pathways you can pursue that are easier and more financially rational than starting a media company. It just so happened that I was in a situation where I wanted to work from home and I wanted to work flexibly on my own terms. I had just quit my master's program in forensic psychology. I had a baby at home. So I wanted a job that I could do on my own terms. I wanted to be able to work from home. Now, this was way before COVID. It was before remote work was an accepted thing. And so starting my own little business was the way that I was going to pursue my own career autonomy, if that makes sense. And I wasn't so much motivated by like a high salary or anything like that. I didn't even think that it would be a successful business. But what was most important to me at that time was being able to combine motherhood with work. And so it was a strategy for me to figure out how to reconcile the two demands. So the, the two demands in my life, which were was parenthood, but also seeking intellectual fulfillment. And so I think that's maybe why it's unexpected. And even though you would naturally consider like a young go-getter male you know, second generation elite or whatever to found a company that becomes successful. I think the unique conditions that gave rise to Quillette, perhaps, you know, they're unexpected, but perhaps they do have a lot to do with its success. The fact that I created the company in order to have autonomy in my work has sort of flowed on to other aspects. Like the editors that I have hired have all worked autonomously. We're a remote company. You know, we have an office in Sydney, but we also have, I have an editor in London, Jamie, and I have an editor in Toronto, John. Mm -hmm. So it's the need for work autonomy has sort of flowed through the company. Yeah. And one thing that was always clear to me as first a reader of Quillette and then a writer for Quillette was the emphasis on a scientific mindset. And that was one of the most attractive qualities about the outlet to me. I was someone that at the time I started writing, I certainly wasn't religious. I was an atheist and I was 
a heretic on the issue of race, but a small L liberal in the grand scheme of things and had never voted, but would only have voted Democrat if I had voted. Mm. And which is to say someone like me wouldn't have written or thought to have written for something like the National Review at that time. Yeah. yeah. Because of yeah. their, even if I agreed with half the articles I heard on particular topics, their mm. emphasis on Catholicism, for example, on religion in general, even the emphasis on sort of worship of the U.S. Constitution and the founding as the final word on every issue, even issues that have changed a lot, all mm. of that didn't seem... It wasn't where I grounded my intellectual worldview. I grounded my worldview in philosophy and science mainly. Mm. And Quillette was, I think Vox had a lot of, of good sort of some good like science-driven, data-driven yeah. articles. And I imagine that had something to do with Matthew Iglesias's influence. Mm. So they kind of traded in that brand to some degree. Quillette, more than anyone, I think, really leaned into the brand of if you're going to come here, you can make any argument and it's you've got to play the science game. You have to play it well. Was that an always a conscious choice by you? Was that something, a value you held before you founded Quillette? Oh, definitely. And part of my mo- motivation for founding Quillette was to publish my own writing, which I felt didn't have a natural home. So I wrote this essay. So I was studying psychology, studying my master's in psychology, and I met Lee Jussum, who is a research psychologist at Rutgers and he came to Sydney for a symposium and his research interest was and is the accuracy of stereotypes Mm -hmm. which is not very PC (laughs) just on the face of it but his research is very interesting and when as I got to know him and got to become familiar with his research I discovered that there was this bias in social psychology towards more left-leaning narratives, hypotheses and theories and so on, and how this has distorted somewhat the research output in that discipline. And so I wanted to write an article about this, and I couldn't think of a publication that it would naturally fit because, like you said, conservative magazines are not oriented around data and they're not necessarily oriented around a rational, scientifically rationalist perspective, whereas Left-leaning publications, even The Guardian has some great science journalism. The Atlantic has great science Mm -hmm. journalism. But I could not imagine them publishing an article about that mentioned the accuracy of stereotypes. It would just, Mm -hmm. it would have been a non-starter. So I thought that there was a gap in the market. And so I I thought, well, I'd better kill it, you know. And yeah. yeah. No, I think that makes makes a lot of sense. I think you were serving a, a need among academics, students, professors that were science oriented and mm. but weren't conservative, but also were willing to make controversial arguments that that violated taboos mm. on the left. Yeah. You know, which were skyrocketing in number and in power precisely in the years preceding the founding of Quillette, which I think, you know, must have had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I've I'm always curious about is is I guess how you deal with the project of keeping a magazine in the vision of of its founding. So I can think of two examples off the top of my head in which people founded a magazine and then later had to leave the magazine and were often sort of kicked out hostily of their own home Mm. um, to varying degrees. Matthew Iglesias would be one example as a co-founder of Vox, who I think now is not very beloved by 
yeah. Vox readers. And another mm-hmm. I can think of is Glenn Greenwald, who I, I believe either founded or co-founded The Intercept and mm-hmm. then was somewhat forced out. As a founder, how do you try to maintain the original ethos, if at all, of Quillette? Or do you rule with an iron fist or do you rule with, I mean, I kind of know the answer to this, um, but, well, you know, I, how, how do you I steer think, the ship? Think, yeah, I think people who work for me will describe me as a fairly easy boss. I'm pretty flexible. However, I own the company and I'm not going to... The companies like Vox and Intercept, I don't know about the Intercept, but... Vox has raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So they're answerable to a board. The founders are answerable to a board. They're answerable to lots of people, lots of stakeholders who, who have invested money. Now, I've had a little bit of financial support for Colette, but it's tiny in comparison to a publication like Vox. And mm-hmm. there is, I have always explained to anybody who wants to donate money to Colette that they will have no influence over editor- our editorial independence mm-hmm. and you know that's non-negotiable mm-hmm. so I mean one strategy I've actually had and it's been a deliberate strategy is to keep the company small because I think if we grew fast and we could have grown faster than what we have we would lose our editorial independence and we would have to be more we would have to try and make more money more quickly and that would mean trading off some of our integrity some of our editorial independence i don't think it's a clear trade-off like i think you can a company can retain its editorial independence and make a lot of money but i think it has to be done incrementally over a long period of time and a half and a company must grow slowly i think if it happens mm. too fast too rapidly there's a lot of risks and you can perhaps lose the ethos of of why the company was founded in the first place yeah, that seems right to me. What do you make of the recent Substack boom? So, you know, in the past two years, as many people will know, Substack has come roaring onto the scene, making deals with individual writers, you know, like they would make a deal with someone like me to simply mm-hmm. publish what would have previously been a blog and be the middleman mm. so that I can have a direct relationship with my readers. And you have some great Substacks like Andrew Sullivan's, which I read and and many others, I would imagine that that kind of thing is is competitive with Quillette on some level or competitive with, you know, the, the kinds of things people are writing on Substack in many cases are the kinds of things that might be written on a Quillette. Or, mm-hmm. And there's the added factor of not necessarily having an editor at Substack. Yeah. Which, yeah. So what have you made of this whole rise as positioned where you are? Well, there's, there's a lot of things going on and... I would like I I welcome the rise of Substack. I think it's a good thing. I think it's been a great thing for media, the diversity in the media industry. I think before Quillette and before Substack, the media industry, particularly in the United States, was overwhelmingly dominated by a stifling level of groupthink. I think a lot of that groupthink has been disrupted and Quillette has been part of that, but Substack has played a huge role. And I think their success is wonderful and it's brilliant. I think that it's fantastic opportunity for really talented writers who can work without an editor, but there are quite a few writers, particularly writers with strong opinions who would benefit mm. from editing. And that's probably one of the risks that comes with running your own sub stack is that you don't get that extra layer of oversight, which could potentially make writing better. But I mean, you know, I think it's a wonderful business model 
particularly for people you know who have something important to say who might have a, a niche subject that they want to dive into with great depth and it doesn't naturally fit a publication that has to publish on a broad range of topics but I think mm-hmm. it's great I mean it has meant that we can't you know in the past we might be able to say to a writer hey publish with us once a fortnight or once a month and we'll give you x number of dollars for that mm-hmm. and Substack has sort of disrupted that where mm. a writer will say well I can just publish on my own and make the same amount of money so it has been a challenge for us in that respect but I think that's offset by the fact that the ecosystem is much healthier now and so I can go to various writers who are less well known who aren't famous and I can check their substacks and, and say wow there's some amazing ideas in there and ask a writer to refashion them into an article for Colette. So I think it's a good thing overall. And I think it's been wonderful for the media industry at large. Yeah. I think uh, one of my favorite quotes about editors from Thomas Sowell, I think he once wrote, the fact that I haven't killed an editor is proof that the death penalty deters. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, funny. (laughs) And he has a great essay on writing where he describes the experience of working with frustrating editors. I mean, he's, Mm -hmm. he's a, he may be one of the rare writing talents that doesn't need it. I mean, his, certainly his pro style doesn't need it because he's so economical with his writing, but Mm -hmm. he's also an opinionated guy. And I've definitely found that I would say seven to eight times out of 10, I benefit from editing because all of our, we're kind of all wearing horse blinders all the time. Mm when we think about topics we care about a lot and just to be reminded of what what's outside of your horse blinders to to be forced to respond to it right to be forced Mm -hmm. to say something that may have maybe obvious to you but won't be obvious to the reader all these kinds of things are liable mistakes that i'm liable to make and most writers are liable to make and that's one potential warning side with Substack. the other is audience capture which is something that i think about and that i fight but this is something that you know outlet like quillette would also potentially become victim to Substack yeah. is particularly bad but it's like you you're going to see that you certain articles get more clicks than others and mm. there's going to be an incentive for you to maybe only do articles that that get those clicks and then you lose the variety you lose the depth you know you go for the candy over the deep flavor and so mm-hmm. how do you approach the problem of audience capture yeah that's a huge topic i mean i've been thinking a lot about audience capture too because it's apparent to me that becoming famous online for producing content can send people down pathways they wouldn't have otherwise been sent down. Mm. And uh, we published this fascinating article by an Indian writer called Gurwanda Bhopal. And the article's called Stop Feeding Your Brain Junk Food. And in that article, he argues that producers of content can actually become brainwashed by their own audiences because Mm. of the incentive structure that online platforms have. And, you know, we can, we experience such a, you know, whenever we get good feedback for some content that we produce, like I'm just talking about us as individuals, you know, we get this flood of reward sort of, you know, the reward centers in our brain are flooded with good feelings. And so that can, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where we're just, we constantly are chasing that feeling of reward. So we're constantly producing the same type of content over and over again. And um, it's risky because we can become, if we are not aware of this happening to ourselves, we can become, end up becoming a parody or a caricature of who we were when we started out on our content producing journey. 
like our opinions can become hyperbolic. We can exaggerate what we're commenting on. We can just become a two-dimensional version of who we were at the beginning of the journey. And so I think it's a huge risk for online producers. And I guess one way that Quillette has tried to avoid this trap is simply to, I've always valued our articles, even if they don't get a lot of clicks. So mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of really fascinating, interesting, wonderful articles that we publish that don't go viral. And I'm so proud of them. And because I can look, I can look at an article and see whether or not it's a great article or not. Mm-hmm. The traffic, getting traffic and getting clicks is like a nice byproduct, but it's not essential. And so I don't, I've never looked at traffic metrics as the be all and end all. They're sort of, at the moment, I don't look at traffic at all. And, yeah. um, you know, I'll, I'll just see if, if an article has been shared a lot on Twitter or something like that. And that's a not, that's mm-hmm. nice, but it's not something I'm chasing. And I think. Yeah, I actually, I make a point of, uh, I have the yeah. same policy. I make a point of never looking at how many listens an individual episode gets. And yeah. I've been embarrassed sometimes because, you know, as a podcast host, people ask me, what's your most listened to episode? And I, I until you have no idea, yeah. I have no idea at all. And uh, I, I can probably guess because I'm not an idiot and I, you know, I know who's more famous than who, but yeah. I couldn't tell you what the multiple is on, you know, the more famous guests, the less famous guests, but I do yeah. really know which guests I enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. And so I do actually try to keep myself somewhat blind to the aspects of the results of my podcast that could really push me in that in that direction. I think that's really smart strategy. Yeah, but it, you know, sometimes it, I think we need to put a barrier between ourselves and likes, mm-hmm. retweets, traffic mm-hmm. metrics, and other sort of cheap forms of uh, reward stimulus. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of which, I read the article on the upheavals that Quillette did, the yeah, the soul yeah. band that formed in prison mm-hmm. in the 70s, formed by convicts doing hard time for serious crimes and ended up being so good that they the surrounding town came to the prison to hear them and, and there's some surviving tapes and they're really excellent. As, as a lover of soul music from the 70s, I thought that was an, just an awesome article. Oh, we were so lucky to have the opportunity to publish it. Just landed in our pitch box. Like mm. your writing landed in our pitch box and we were like, wow, mm. this is amazing. Yeah, so we were, yeah. we were thrilled to publish that. And that's the kind of article that doesn't go viral but is an important article historically, sociologically. Just And anyone who did read that article just loved it. So, yeah, yeah it's a good example of how you can know an article is good and important without looking at what it how it performs in terms of traffic right okay so i'm going to pander to audience capture right now and (laughs) ask you some questions that twitter uh, wanted to ask you sure so yeah i can see you're strapping in your seatbelt right now so (laughs) so one thing people wanted us to talk about was the perceived fracture of of the quote idw over COVID issues so yeah for better or for worse there was something that people perceived to be called the IDW, which you and I were perceived to be a part of, along with people like the Weinstein brothers, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, et cetera, Majid Nawaz, Michael Shermer, other people. And when COVID hit, it seemed like there was a fracture between 
the people like Brett and Majid that went to different degrees into conspiracy land on questions of the vaccine's safety and efficacy. And people, I think, like yourself, from what I've seen, and Sam Harris and Michael Shermer, and I think, you know, I I guess probably myself as well, that seemed more trusting of the mainstream health institutions on those questions. Mm. So people are curious, basically, what happened, right? You guys were all like a big happy family and now, you know, mom and dad aren't getting along and what's the deal? I think that's a question that people have in their heads. So I'm curious if you even think about what happened in those terms and Mm. what you think happened. I I have my own theory. I'll ask you first. Yeah, I mean, it's the IDW was a term given to a quite broad set of people and we were never some kind of group, like group that, hung out or even talked much at all. I've never met Brett Weinstein. But a lot of people, particularly online, seem to think that this group of people needed to agree on, needed to have a consensus. Now we did, if you looked at this group of people, what we did have a consensus agreement upon was the toxicity or the excessiveness of identity politics. So I would agree with someone like Brett Weinstein or Jordan Peterson on excessive identity politics being harmful to society in general and to individuals. But I don't agree with them on other issues. And I would just say for myself that I'm in as much as the establishment is pursuing identity politics and what I mean by that is like special advantages for women or affirmative action type of thing in as much as the establishment is promoting those policies and those ideas uncritically I'm anti-establishment so I will Mm -hmm. there are many reasons why I am critical of policies that emphasize the differences between us whether it's sex or gender or race and so on and so forth I don't like the uncritical acceptance of such policies. However, I don't see public health as having that much to do with identity politics, if anything. And I'm not anti-establishment when it comes to public health. I'm not anti-establishment when it comes to something like national security. So I'm on the side of the West when it comes to Ukraine. Like I think I don't have any motivation to make justifications for what Putin is doing in the Ukraine. So And I think that the difficulty has been for a lot of people in our audience, they thought, they seemed to think that I was and Colette was just contrarian and anti-establishment full stop and that this was meant to come in a package and that I and the rest of us at Colette were meant to question the establishment on absolutely everything. And that's sort of been a misreading of our ethos. We've always taken issues on a case-by-case basis. And just because someone is anti-establishment or questions the consensus view on something like identity politics doesn't mean they're going to question the consensus view on other issues. Climate change is another good example. I mean, I question some of the proposed solutions to climate change, like I'm a critic of renewable technologies like wind and solar, but I don't question the fact that climate change is happening. Um, Mm. I trust the science, you know. So I think it can be difficult for an audience to understand that political issues, social issues need to be understood on a case-by-case basis and that a rational person doesn't lump all of these diverse issues into a package. You can't Mm. come up with a one-size-fits-all answer to all of these complex issues that they they have to be looked at individually. 
Yeah. So I think I agree with everything you said there. And I think that also describes my pre-existing, which is say prior to COVID, my orientations mm-hmm. towards all these issues. I always felt like I was trying my best to be scientific and philosophically minded on yeah. any issue. And mm-hmm. That's what put me at odds with the people that think every racial disparity is racism, right? That, that is a mm-hmm. profoundly unscientific point of view. Like you That's could just, right. there's so many hundreds of examples that disconfirm that hypothesis. And that's what, that's what animated me on that issue. And I, I'm yeah. you know, going to an Ivy League school. I was thinking, why are people trained to think scientifically pretending that two plus two doesn't equals four here? But that is my basic orientation. My orientation was never really anti-establishment or conspiratorial. And so what I think happened is that what was described as the IDW always contained two somewhat different kinds of people. And some of those people were actually quite into conspiracy from the beginning. Mm. So for example... I remember, and these are all people that I think have contributed a lot of value on on a lot of different issues. So Mm. no shade is being intended or thrown. But I remember when I met Eric Weinstein, some event in New York and introduced myself and we'd heard of each other and so forth. He kind of asked me quickly and kind of offhandedly, do you believe in conspiracies? And this is before COVID. And I I think I've said... I think I said something like, I tend to not believe them unless I see Mm. crazy overwhelming, extraordinary amount of evidence. Mm. So I I basically said no. And he said, oh, well, that's ridiculous. I'm actually a part of four different conspiracies myself. And then I said, which ones? I said, which ones? (laughs) And then he said, obviously, I can't tell you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's a a remarkable interaction. Yeah, It is remarkable. It's a remarkable first conversation with any human being, actually. It's stuck in my mind to this day for that reason. All this to say, I think there was a pre-existing difference between folks like Eric and, and folks like yourself and Sam in that you had different attitudes towards conspiracy thinking in general, some being more friendly to it, some being Mm. very opposed to it. And those attitudes were just, Mm. that difference was just exposed for the first time for real during COVID. That's a really interesting way of putting it because how I first became politicized was through, I thought that a lot of rhetoric around feminism, I thought a lot of feminist narratives were conspiracy theories. I thought this concept of the patriarchy keeping Mm. all of us women down and oppressed and there was some kind of invisible layer of power, systematic oppression, I thought it was a conspiracy theory because it didn't correspond with the empirical evidence that I could experience in my own life and I could see with my own eyes. So Mm -hmm. that feeling that this feminism, these narratives that were constantly being promoted in mainstream media were a low-level type of conspiracy theory, that's what motivated, that's what politicised me originally. And so, you know, it was my scepticism towards conspiratorial ideas that sort of got me going in my career. And then Mm -hmm. the other thing is that as a student of psychology, I was aware that there there were bodies of research that were not politically correct and that journalists or uh, lay people were not quite, were not very familiar with. And I had a respect, I do have a tremendous respect for the scientific method and scientific rationalism. And I wasn't going to throw that out because the pandemic Mm -hmm. came along. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've always been pro-science. I mean, that's not, I'm not pro-science TM. Like I'm not some kind of I'm aware that biases creep into fields of research and that groupthink can afflict entire disciplines. I'm, I'm aware of that, but you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, that we don't have any better 
way of understanding the world than the scientific method. And I, I just found it disappointing that some of these people with large platforms sort of just threw out a lot of nonsense and polluted the information ecosystem with their sort of crackpot theories. I, I found it disappointing and I still do. Yeah, so I want to highlight one thing you said that much feminist talk about the patriarchy holding women down felt conspiratorial to you. This is a, mm. this is an exact feeling I've had about systemic racism and mm. white supremacy. Mm-hmm. The idea, usually when scholars talk about systemic racism, they mean a system that is racist without any individual in the system having to be racist. And it's yeah. become this very amorphous idea where you don't actually have to identify any concrete thing made of atoms that is holding somebody back. <laughs> but it's just sort of, and so I've actually described it, I think, as a conspiracy theory without the conspirators, because that's what it is. And, and um, in any event, Mm. though, I want to get back to this issue of science, because I do think some of what you're saying changes has felt different to me in the American landscape. And I know less about the Australian case. And I think it's quite different enough to know it's quite different. A lot of what people on Twitter wanted you to respond to and defend is your record of having defended Australia's hardline approach to COVID. And this Mm -hmm. is uh, something you're going to know far more details on than I do because I've mostly been Mm -hmm. paying attention to the American case. But um, maybe talk a bit about how Australia approached COVID differently and why you defended that approach over the loud objections of many within and, and around the world? Well, it's there's two things there. So, so Australia didn't have a COVID policy that was the same in each state. We're, we're similar to the US in that we're a federation and we have different states. Mm-hmm. I was critical of the COVID response that happened in Victoria under Dan Andrews. I thought it was draconian and I published articles about how bad it was, about how draconian it was and how small business owners were suffering. And the approach that Victoria took had these extended lockdowns. The approach that Victoria took led to civil unrest. And I thought that it was understandable that this civil unrest happened. During the during 2020 and 2021, I was I live in Sydney. And so we didn't have we did have a lockdown, but it wasn't not as extensive as what the lockdown in Melbourne was what Melbournians were experiencing. Now, a lot of the international attention, a lot of the American influencers and people on Twitter who were responding to the Australian situation, a lot of what they were looking at was the Victorian situation. They weren't understanding or making any effort to understand that we had different policies in different states. Now, my parents who live in Adelaide they weren't under lockdown at all while Melbourne was under lockdown. So, like, we had a, millions of people living in Australia experience no lockdown because they had their borders shut and they didn't have any COVID at all. So it was, it was one of these situations where a lot of what I was objecting to was what I thought was distorted information. So I wasn't actually defending the lockdowns in Victoria. At least I didn't think I was. It might have, people may have interpreted it that way but I was strongly objecting to what I saw as a lot of distorted information being circulated online the most egregious example of this distorted information occurred around the indigenous population in northern territory these small communities of indigenous people 
got COVID and the armed forces helped these indigenous people move out of their overcrowded residential areas into camps. <laughs> now, this was presented as this borderline sort of concentration camp Holocaust situation where poor Indigenous people are being rounded up by the army and are being sent to camps. And some American YouTubers had a field day because it just sounds bad. It looks bad. But it was a complete beat up. It wasn't, you know, these YouTubers, like I'll just say the names, like Tim Paul, for example, didn't care. He didn't make any effort to talk to anybody in the Northern Territory didn't make any effort to talk to anyone from an Indigenous background who could give more context and more information as to what was happening, couldn't care less about these actual people, just wanted to use them as a propaganda tool to say that Australia was becoming a fascist state, we had concentration camps, this was part of the Great Reset or whatever, and we were all being herded off to our imprisonment and, you know, there and, 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 get, and making these allusions to the Holocaust. Now, I just objected to that kind of information warfare. I just thought it was tasteless. I thought it was hyperbolic. One can disagree with policies without taking it to that extreme level of hyperbole. And, I, and what frustrated me about the COVID situation was how little curiosity people actually had to the detail and the nuance and the situation on the ground. And I saw lots of Australians online on Twitter trying to give Americans a bit more information about what was actually happening and just being sort of like abused or shut down because what they were yeah. saying wasn't fitting in with this preconceived notion of what was actually happening. So it was a, it was a discombobulating experience for me and for many Australians actually. Yeah, my perception from just looking at my Twitter replies to saying that I'm talking to you like the number of people that commented about this particular issue was was higher than I would have guessed. Yeah. No, I'm known you know, in, in it, certain I'm known in certain circles online as just being the person who defended COVID concentration camps. And I think part of that is implicitly that picture of you as having been anti-establishment on issues like identity politics yeah. makes you a traitor to them and a traitor generally gets it worse than an enemy does. And part of that, I have to imagine, you know, I, I don't know what it was for Tim Pool. I don't really follow his, his work at all. But I think some of it is like projecting, or it might be at least, I'm curious if you agree, projecting our American sort of culture war around COVID, which was really intense until the Ukraine issue moved it out of the news and maybe grafting that onto other countries. And my perception basically of America during COVID was that you had hardcore anti-vaxxers on the left that were basic, uh, sorry, on the right that were basically brainwashed and were willing to sort of not take the vaccine at any cost to their own health. And some mm -hmm. horror stories of people actually on their deathbed with regret having not taken it. And then you had what I thought were really reasonable critiques and caveats that ought to have been included in the selling of the vaccine to the public, 
Hmm. And if you mentioned them, you were just destroyed by the left as an anti-vaxxer. Right? So like if you if you were and, and you sort of had to go to Substack to, to read this stuff, right? You had to pay attention mm-hmm. to like, mm-hmm. you know, Vinay Prasad and, and ZDog MD and these other sort of independent content creators to learn that several European countries were no longer recommending Pfizer to men under 30 because yeah. the, um, you know, the myocarditis rates were sort of just high enough to be an outside concern. And you probably make more sense to recommend Moderna mm-hmm. in that case. So, and, and what's more, I think we have a, a CDC, our central health authority, Center for Disease Control, which seemed from my perspective to just not want to give any caveat or budge an inch to give even a small win to the anti-vaxxers. So for example, there's a New York Times article where a spokesperson for the CDC, I think this was a few months ago, admitted that they withheld data on the efficacy of the booster for young people strategically mm-hmm. because the data didn't look good enough, right? And and would have been touted yeah. as a win from the anti-vaxxers, which, you know, triggers all of my don't trust the system alarm bells and makes me, you know, more sympathetic to people that are generally distrustful of, of even health authorities when mm-hmm. they admit to manipulating the truth for yeah. the public. And so I guess that's been my perception of, of the whole COVID issue in America. I don't know if that's how much you've been paying attention to it here or if you, if you agree or not, but. Well, no, it sound, that sounds right. And it, it corresponds with other culture war issues. Not that there's anything inherently culture warish about public health and vaccination, but for example, your the situation of abortion is in America, like the ex, there's more, ex, your extremes are more, Mm-hmm. extreme than anywhere else mm-hmm. in the world like other countries don't have late-term abortion and yet right. they don't have states or regions where they're going to restrict it from right. day one so right. you, you just the positions are more of a gap between the positions like i um i was i'm organizing a small event in the united states and i was looking at venues to book this event and i noticed on these venues there were quite aggressive notices saying you must be vaccinated, you must wear a mask, you must be boosted. It's like, mm-hmm. what? We don't even have that in Australia. Like, there's no there's no hmm. restrictions on me now going to a restaurant or a club or booking something. We don't wear masks anymore except on public transport. But just the notice of it, you must be boosted. It's like in all caps or something. And I hadn't seen that kind yeah. of aggression, aggressive notice anywhere else. And I thought, wow, they really do, um, there really is a... You know, there's an aggressive politicization. It felt aggressive to me just, oh, yeah, just no, reading that notice. So I, I can kind of understand why been. people have just lost lost their minds a little bit in the mm-hmm. United in the US situation because it's I mean, like if people are using something like vaccination as a cudgel to beat you over the head with, I mean, that's going mm-hmm. to be infuriating for a lot of people. Oh, totally. And I think um, I have to think there have been people in America during COVID that you know, traveled to Texas, got yelled at for wearing a mask, and then yeah. traveled to New York in the same day and got yelled yeah. at for not wearing a mask. Like that statistically yeah. that had to have happened because those two things happen so often. I was, yeah. I think once or twice yelled at for not wearing a mask outdoors, <laughs> you know, not close to yeah. anybody. And yeah. at the very elite institutions, there still even now is this insistence on being boosted more as mm-hmm. a signal of that you're in the right tribe than, than anything yeah. else at this point. But most of that has, has fallen away. And I do think you, you highlight this American tendency to have everything be as extreme as possible. And it's, 
Mm. It's really exhausting. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it, it, it seems like every issue is an opportunity to signal your membership of a tribe. And so the more, mm. the more extreme you can take it, policy, the more you're, you're signaling your in-group loyalty. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a problem because, you know, the majority of these issues shouldn't be politi- political at all. Mm-hmm. Was that, am I wrong to perceive that Australia's border policy was particularly draconian throughout COVID? Like yeah. if you left, you sort yeah. of couldn't come back? Yeah, it was. And um, it interrupted a lot of people, like a lot of people wanted to come home and they couldn't. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was draconian. And I completely understand the criticism of it. and. I completely understand why people thought that it was illiberal and not reflective of a free society, because it wasn't. At the same time, however, I was slightly bemused with how much criticism of the policy came from the American right. One of their pet issues is border control. <laughs> I thought right, it was right. You guys had the, <laughs> that the they border wanted that, us to have open right borders suddenly. Yeah. Right. But yeah, no, I, I do think it was too strict. And, you know, it was probably justified at the start of the pandemic, but it became too strict. And uh, we've all had COVID now. COVID's ripped right through. And it's possible that the amount of pain and suffering that were, was caused by the border closures was not worth it because we all ended mm. up with COVID anyway. Mm. Yeah, well, the whole the political valence of the COVID issue was surprising to begin with. I mean, I've said this too many times on my podcast now, but it's still true. Like two weeks, I remember in March 2020, it wasn't politicized at all. And yeah. we were just trying to figure out what the death rate was. And, yeah. you know, 0.1 seemed as likely as like 3%. And we we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out if this was an end of the world type scenario, who it's killing. And I would read different outlets. I would read The Atlantic and New York Times and Fox. And I w- wouldn't be worried that anyone is spinning it any particular way because the teams hadn't chosen their their yeah. perspectives yet. Yeah. And then about two weeks in, but you know, it was never foretold because even, you know, Trump was bragging about Operation Warp Speed and how the vaccine, yeah. obviously he downplayed it at first as did some mm-hmm. left-wing outlets, but he downplayed it more. But then he began bragging mm-hmm. about the vaccine and how it was going to be the best thing ever. And you'll do, you know, you, you've never seen a vaccine like it and his whole shtick. Mm-hmm. And had he won, it's possible that he would have taken all of the Republican Party with him on that issue. And, and mm-hmm. anti-vaxxing still would have been the province of the far left, which it was yeah. in my youth. You know, my, my mom was kind yeah. of an anti-vaxxer, in fact, from the Marxist point of view. Yeah, no, I, I found it quite surprising that anti-vaxxism took off so much on the right because he have you have private companies, these pharmaceutical companies, developing something quickly, much more quickly than what the public sector could potentially achieve. It's a solution to a problem. It's a win. It shows how effective the free market is, right? And mm-hmm. it was produced under a Republican government op- under Operation Warp Speed, these vaccines. So I was surprised because it, to me, it was a reflection of how effective free markets and you know, capitalism can be. But mm. it just sort of, I can't really explain what happened. I'm not, you know, it's too close historically to, for the lessons to come out about why the right took such a turn towards anti-vaccination. I can't give it a good analysis on, but to me, it just felt like, you know, this is, a, this is the free market doing its job. So I was surprised mm-hmm. by how many on the right didn't, couldn't recognize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the last 
issue I wanted to touch on with you was uh, guns because this has been in the news for us in in America as it is every summer. And it's whenever it's in the news, Australia is always a part of this conversation because I think for a few reasons, I think there historically has been some similarity between America and Australia, not just in being English speaking countries, but in being countries where a subset of people um, have guns and Mm. Australia is usually touted as the model for how to deal with the issue. Mm. I think you'll know the details better than me, but you had a mass shooting, I think, was it in the early aughts? And then- um, It's in 96. In 96, that's right. Mm. And just had the what is viewed in retrospect as the perfect policy response to it. And then you you guys have been, you know, watching as America suffers mass shootings, you know, year in and year out. So I'm curious what your perspective on the gun issue is. I, I remember there was a good article by Michael Shermer and Colette on this issue. So what's your general perspective on gun safety and, and gun control? Yeah, well, uh, firstly, I just, I just have to say that even though there are, are a lot of similarities between Australia, Australians and Americans and Australian culture and American culture, we're very different historically in mm-hmm. when looking at how the countries were set up and the origins of our cultures. So I think the gun, I mean, I'm not an expert on the history of gun culture in the United States by any means, but the revolutionary history and then obviously with the drawing up of the constitution and the second amendment, I mean, nothing like that happened in Australia. We were settled as a giant, we were settled as a bureaucracy, basically. People from England came out to set up a new country and we were set up as a bureaucracy and, and the English colonists gave money to farmers, to businessmen. They tried, the government had helped people who came over to settle helped them get Australia going was there was no kind of antagonistic relationship like between the English and the uh, settlers as there was in America. Perhaps the English learned their lesson from the American Revolution and decided that in this new colony of Australia, they were not going to antagonize people like they Mm -hmm. did back in America. Mm -hmm. So we just, I think the differences in our understanding of guns comes from our historical differences. So when the government right. took uh, the banned semi-automatic weapons in Australia. You know, there was some protest from gun rights advocates, but most of us just said, yeah, that's that makes sense. And people gave back their guns. And we simply don't have the same culture of deep mistrust of government. Most Australians' interactions with the government is one of being helped out by the government. So from the day that you were born, you're entitled to free healthcare. Like I've been to hospital a handful of times. I've woken up in hospital because I've had a bike accident. I was hit by a car when I was 23. I don't have to worry about paying the hospital bill. I don't have to worry about paying an ambulance bill. It's all paid for by the government. We have universal healthcare. So it's experiences like that, which mean that means that Australians are not as inherently suspicious and mistrustful of government. So that when it comes time to have a drastic policy change, like banning semi-automatic weapons, we're not immediately jumping to the conclusion that the government are going to enforce some kind of fascist tyranny where they take away all of our rights. I think there's this, in what, from what I've seen in the American discourse, there's this extraordinary fear that if the guns are taken away, that means the the government's going to be rolling tanks down the streets of the suburbs and suddenly it's going to be 
some kind of fascist Germany situation. We just don't think like that in Australia. We, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if our apathy is too relaxed. Potentially we should be more cautious and wary of government overreach, but we just don't have the same kind of fear and some of us would say paranoia yeah. as what exists in well, the United States. No, I mean, I do think that that's paranoia. I mean, I also think the idea that if if guns were taken away, or sorry, the, the idea that having guns really represents a deterrent to the force of state and federal governments, I think is a, probably a fiction, which is mm-hmm. to say if, if the government woke up with evil intent and wanted to massacre all of us, I'm not sure how long you'd last defending your home, even if you have like a garage full of semi-automatic weapons, how long would that siege last against an entire police force or an entire... So there, I mean, I do think there is something of a paranoid prepper mentality to that. On the other hand, people regularly in America defend themselves with guns successfully against home invasions. And, you know, like this is, I think people on the left like to pretend that this either never happens or there's no reason a rational person could want a gun. But um, I mean, there are just many examples where the police are not going to come quick enough. And it's, you know, one, your odds of ever this happening to you are low. But if you live in an area with a lot of crime, it's like it does happen. And there's story after story after story of it Mm -hmm. happening successfully. And if you can judge yourself to be a competent gun owner, I don't think there's actually anything irrational about owning it. But as you say, because America has had 250 years of gun culture, which means we've had a huge market in guns, legal and illegal, for hundreds of years. And because it goes all the way back to the founding, before even America existed, every man was expected to have a gun and be able to join a militia on command, either to fight Native Americans or to fight the British. And the existence of the country is necessarily connected to this sense of man should own a gun and know how to use it. I think Mm -hmm. that set us on a course that no other industrialized nation has been set on. And that's obviously the reason why the Second Amendment exists. But like I said, in the beginning of this conversation, part of my lack of fit with American conservatism, half of it was the religious thing, which I had nothing to do with. Another part of it was the worship of the Constitution as the final moral appeal. So like, if you argue about guns with with many Americans, especially on the right, what many of them will say is, well, listen, for better, for worse, the Second Amendment, like it, you know, like the Second Amendment's there. So what conversations, like we have the right to bear arms. And, you know, as a philosophically minded person, I don't understand the Constitution to be actually moral groundwork on which to build an argument. Yeah, it's viewed as a document that's written by the hand of God, I think. Right, that's right. And like some people view religious texts, that it's the revealed word of God cannot be questioned. I mean, that's fundamentalism. And so Mm -hmm. just like you will have evangelical Christians who may or may not be fundamentalists, you will have people who are fundamentalists around the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And uh, I agree with you that the coming technology changes and we have technology today that you know, the American founders would not be able to have predicted and a society must adapt, I think. I don't want to make any, I'm not going to say anything about the Second Amendment or anything like that, but we recently published uh, an article at Quillette. It was a lost Carl Sagan lecture that he gave to the ACLU back in the 80s. And he 
he mentioned nuclear weapons and about how you know this this is an example nuclear weapons were are an example of a technology that is not covered by the constitution and he made it the argument in reference to the fact that the government has to declare it's the government's role to declare war or something like that there's mm-hmm. some constitutional protection around that but he Carl Sagan was saying this technology has made that aspect of the constitution invalid because mm. you know if the Soviets launch a nuclear attack on us it's all you know they've declared war and it's already too late for us to do anything anyway that's a convolute that was a convoluted way of saying that technology changes it that presumably or you would think that you would update laws to reflect the fact that technology is presenting new challenges. But if you're going to be a fundamentalist and view the constitution as something written by the word of God, then you're not going to have that kind of flexibility. Yeah. All right, Claire, I think that's the end of the topics I I had planned. Uh, Is there there anything else you want to tell my audience? Any Quillette things (laughs) that you want to hip them to? Well, Go on. I, I encourage all of your your listeners to go and look up our article that we recently published on Upheaval, the Wisconsin Prison Band. I think they'll mm. they will love it. And subscribe to our newsletter and listen to our podcast. We've got a fantastic podcast hosted by John Kay, and it's coming up two hundred episode. And nice. Otherwise, just keep in the loop. We've got lots of interesting articles and essays coming out. They're not all culture wars related. That a lot of them are just in-depth, interesting articles looking at tricky issues from a data-oriented, from a scientific perspective. And yeah, just check All it right, out. All right, Claire Lehman, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you, Colin. Thanks for having me. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, Thank you for your support.